0: Alive and Kicking on News Talk
1: with Benelin day and night tablets. 24-hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, the mystery of the pelvic floor. I'll be discussing the taboo of incontinence and how, while it's common, it's not normal with obstetrician and gynecologist Dr. Jerry Agnew. It seems jumping on trampolines doesn't always have to lead with a dash into the house. I'll also be joined by yoga and mindfulness teacher Michelle Van Valey on the importance of mindfulness for kids and parents with practical examples of what that actually looks like and how it can help. And neuroscientist Sabina Brennan will discuss what happens in our brains when we work out. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, the mood of the country has been low this week, hasn't it? Whatever we felt about the intrusion of COVID at Christmas has been drastically eclipsed by talk of violence against women and the horrendously tragic death of Ashling Murphy. A tragedy that didn't need to happen and was felt by every single one of us. So often in the debate about female safety, the defence of not all men and the questioning about where she was and what she was doing rears its ugly head. But this time, when a 23 year old junior school teacher and local musician is jogging by the canal at four o'clock in the afternoon and is murdered in broad daylight, well, it's about as stark as it can get. Working in media, as I have for many years now, the worry is that headlines move on and nothing really changes. But I am hopeful that this time the cognizance has shifted in people, particularly men, are getting it this time. Even the most gentlest of men, and I've been lucky to have been surrounded by them my whole life, are seeing that even though they would never dream of hurting a woman, they can still be part of the solution. We all can. We can call out misogyny, we can go to great lengths to make women feel safer and we can call on our policy and lawmakers to bring about zero tolerance and to treat victims with the respect they are not currently being afforded when they come forward at present. Alana Quinn Idris, the 17 year old, brutally attacked, as was her friend who tried to defend her. A stabbing and a hugely debilitating eye injury garnered bail recently at two hundred Euro for the accused, which sends out a message that isn't okay, and before Ashling Murphy's death this week, Alana Quinn Idris was slipping out of the headlines. It is heavy stuff, I know, but do bear in mind that a small number of people can bring about huge change. Scientists at the Polytech University of Rensselaer have found that when just 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief, that belief will be adopted by the majority of the society. We have made great strides in this country that have rippled out across the world. We have shifted long-held belief systems and moved to a view that holds empathy and respect of others at its core in so many other topics and I hope we can really begin to do the same here. I did plan on talking about my week and how I got more organised and give you tips about the same but we'll come back to that. This seemed a far more pressing matter. You can email the show newstalk.com. Now, the topic of incontinence is something I wanted to cover on the show as it happens to many. We all have various toilet habits. It is normal, but there's still a difficulty in talking more openly about issues that can arise. I'm joined on the line now by consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist, Dr. Jerry Agnew. Hello, Jerry. How are you?
2: Hello, Claire. Thanks for having me.
1: I wanted to cover the topic of incontinence because it is quite a taboo subject, and I don't really think it should be. It's quite a normal bodily function, um, and not enough people talk about it. So, why do you think it's it's so taboo? Do you find people come to you when they've really reached rock bottom with something because they haven't wanted to talk about it?
2: Well, I, it's interesting, even the way that you set that up, Claire, because you said you know that it's. Um, it's, it's sort of a normal thing or it's a common thing. I think incontinence uh, and pelvic floor problems are extremely common, but they're not normal. And the thing that I think that we're battling against all the time is this perception that is given to women that, well, that's what happens when you have babies. That's just normal. And you should, you know, get on with it. And it's only if it's very bad that you should really have to seek help. And and that's really not true. We have great help available. And I think there are a lot of women are suffering in silence with this. Um, And certainly in our grandmother's time, they were just told to get on with it. And and there was nobody offering them anything. It's not just a female issue though, is it? Um, Well, I'm a gynecologist, so I primarily deal with females. But it it is uh, far more common, um, certainly stress incontinence, which is uh, a big problem, which is very much related to childbirth. Um, is a very um, common problem that I would deal with. And overactive bladder, which is urgency and frequency to go to the loo, uh, which a lot of women have, and a lot of men could experience that also. Um, But stress incontinence, which is predominantly the the one related to childbirth, uh, that's usually a female problem.
1: So what are the symptoms you should be looking out for?
2: Well, um, stress incontinence, itself means leakage with an increase in ab- uh, intra-abdominal pressure. So anything that makes you leak when you, when you, uh, exert yourself. So laughing, jumping, coughing, sneezing, dancing, anything like that, that if you, if you have an involuntary leakage of urine, that's stress incontinence. Urgency is the other type of common incontinence where women say, and um, when I have to go, I have to go. I'm going to the loo all the time. I know where every if I go into town, I know where every loo in town is, and I'm going 15 times a day, I'm going five times at night, and when I have to go, I have to go. I might make it, but I might have an accident before I get there. So they're the two common types.
1: And so what is our pelvic floor and how important is it that it's functioning correctly?
2: Yeah, well the, the pelvic floor is an elastic um bowl of support or shelf of support in the lower pelvis and its job is to hold the bladder the bowel and the vagina in their proper position so you can imagine when when a lady gets pregnant first of all you have the hormonal changes related to pregnancy and they have a loosening effect uh, on the entire uh, smooth muscle in the body so they have this loosening effect so even if a woman has a cesarean section and doesn't have a vaginal delivery she can still experience pelvic floor problems as a result of that loosening effect for nine months. So you get the hormone effect, then you have the pressure effect of carrying this cannonball around in your tummy, which is putting pressure on your bladder over the nine months. And then if you have a vaginal birth and you pass a baby through this elastic support, just like any elastic band, if you stretch it too far for too long, you don't break it, but it never comes back as good as it was. And that's um, what causes problems. Now, some women get away with it uh, for many years, and the damage is usually done uh, during pregnancy and childbirth, but they might get away with it. They're able to hang on until they have the menopause. And when women hit the menopause and their estrogen levels drop, uh, these tissues become a little bit thinner and a little bit weaker. So they may come forward with symptoms straight away after having babies, or they may not notice them or start to become symptomatic till they're in their 60s.
1: Um, and I suppose something else people don't want to discuss openly, although you're right, we're getting better, particularly women to women, is changes in sexual function. Can you talk a little bit about that and the effects that that can have?
2: Yes. And I mean, this is this is what, what, what's so important about the whole issue is that we really talk about pelvic floor problems and not just zone in on something like stress incontinence. The, these uh, organs are all located right beside each other. So it's very unusual, nearly, for me to see somebody who just has stress incontinence and everything else around the area is perfect. That, that's really not the case. There, there's damage in the area, and then some areas are more symptomatic than others. But, so you can have stress incontinence. But so frequently, when women come to me with incontinence, and you're taking their history, and you, when you go through the whole pelvic floor history, you, you, re, you realize that they have these other problems that they didn't even realize was related. So you mentioned sexual function there. So so many women will say, well, first of all, they've come with incontinence, so they're thinking about that. So many women will say, I leak urine if I have intercourse, and um, or the fear, the fear of leaking when I have intercourse puts me right off. And then the other thing is, with this stretching of the pelvic floor, uh, when with childbirth, it can leave the vagina much looser than it was pre um, children. And women thought, well, this is this is what you're you're supposed to expect. This is normal. It's common, but it's not normal. And women shouldn't have to live with that. And it can, as it can be very easily addressed. So they can have a lack of sens- sensation. The other thing is that at childbirth, a lot of women get suturing or get stitches, whether from an episiotomy or from a tear. And often this can heal a little too well, and women can be left just a little bit tight. And this can cause pain and tightness, which is extremely easy to resolve if, if they're aware that the, that, that the issue can be addressed. The other problem is with the bowels. The, the support of the bowels um, can be damaged through this uh, elastic tissue being overstretched. And then women don't empty their bowels properly. They're constipated. They feel they're only half emptying. They put their legs up on a stool to help them evacuate their bowels. And they, they, so many women think, oh, that's just me. It's my diet. I need to control it. But it's not it's prolapse and it's something they've had for years and they haven't even realized it's a pelvic floor problem what is a prolapse um good question so a prolapse it's really a hernia into the vagina so it's when the there's three things really that can prolapse prolapse means uh, it's descending so the the bladder the womb and the bowel are all held in their normal position by this elastic support and when the elastic support is damaged it, it can make the walls of the vagina weaker, and it allows the bladder to descend, so or the womb to descend, or the bowel to descend. And once they descend, then they're not in the correct position. They don't work properly. And, and that's really what prolapse is. Frequently, women will say, I've noticed when I'm having a shower, I feel like there's a tennis ball coming down, or there's an egg, there's a pressure there. Or they may feel symptoms of incomplete emptying, not emptying their bladder properly getting recurrent urinary tract infections, not emptying their bowel properly, having to feel like they want to put their legs up on a stool or lie back on the toilet to help themselves evacuate. They're all prolapse symptoms.
1: So what are the treatments then? Because none of that sounds pretty for people to be living with. um, But you say there are lots of solutions out there.
2: there. There's lots of solutions. So the first thing I would suggest is if somebody is, feels they have uh, one of these problems, if they're pretty sure that they have one of these problems, the first port of call should always be a women's health physiotherapist. These are a great group of professionals. I work very closely with them. And um, these are physiotherapists who specialize in uh, care of the pelvic floor. And they will help you diagnose what's actually going on. And they will help you in terms of improving the tone of the pelvic floor, getting those muscles uh, working well again, and improving your bladder, bowel and sexual function. If after, um, say six months of working with a a pelvic floor physiotherapist, that you feel that you're not making enough progress, or it hasn't been enough to solve things, at that stage, you should come up and and see a specialist like a, a urogynecologist.
1: And can we help ourselves? I mean, amongst my friends, we have spoken about doing Kegel exercises and that's kind of where it ends. Should we be taking time out of our day to make sure we're keeping our pelvic floor in check?
2: Yeah, well, see, everyone is so busy now and, and with the best will in the world, it's very hard to find time to do these things. Um, Pilates is very good. Anything that's helping women to focus and think about their core strength and their pelvic floor And these sort of exercise classes and programs are great. And I would recommend that for all women who are, say, on the very mild end or who are not too symptomatic. But if you're having problems with incontinence or you feel you have a prolapse, you're not going to be able to manage that yourself. And so I would definitely go see either your GP or a, a women's health physiotherapist as a first port of call. And they will then tell you, you know, help you put a program together that you can work with. Um, or send, if they feel it's something beyond that, send you on to someone like myself.
1: I hear a lot about this chair, this M. chair that yeah. if you sit on, it's the equivalent of 10,000 Kegel exercises and you're sitting on it for 30 minutes fully clothed. Have you begun to use that as part of your treatment?
2: Well, I, I certainly would recommend uh, pelvic floor physiotherapy and pelvic floor toning and whatever works for you. Um, to, to achieve that goal is fine by me. I think the chair is fantastic because it's, it's far more, um, it's going to, as you said, it's going to um, get the muscles working probably a lot better than you would if, if you were doing it by yourself. The other thing is, if you're going to sign up for a program with a device like the chair, you're committing yourself and you're going to go to set sessions that's going to work your pelvic floor. So with the best will in the world, when you're busy and you're out there doing your own thing, Um, you probably are not going to find the time for it. So um, without a doubt, the chair is uh, is something that's very effective for pelvic floor. But I would recommend first going to a women's health physiotherapist and talking to them because some women, not the majority, but there are some women where their pelvic floor muscles are actually over tight. And these women will often have, have pain, particularly with penetration. And if you have over tight muscles and you don't realize it and you're just stimulating it with more exercises or something like the chair without proper guidance, you, you, you might do more harm than good. So I think to be assessed first by a pelvic floor physiotherapist and ask them about, would I be someone who would be suitable for um, a device like the amcella and, and if they are suitable, then I think it would be a fantastic option if it, if it works for the women.
1: And how do you know then when it's time? I mean, obviously you'd be guided by an expert like yourself, but what about surgery? How invasive is the surgery? How long is recovery? People kind of fear going under the knife, but what has been your experience
2: with patients? Yeah, well, um, it depends obviously on what the problem is. But, you know, we mentioned stress incontinence earlier. Uh, We're getting better and better at treating stress incontinence, and we have a lot of very good options for it now. Personally, I use a thing called a bulking agent as my first line treatment at present. And this is a water-based gel that we inject into the tube that you pee from. And it just gives women a little bit of extra support and bulking and can have incredibly good results. I've been very impressed with it. And this is something that's done as a day case. And there's no pain involved afterwards. People could go to work the next day. And um, it can be done under a local or general anesthetic. Um, it works. Uh, if it works well, it'll give you about a 60, 70% improvement in your stress incontinence. Um, you might need a repeat treatment if, if things were suboptimal, but it's very safe, very easy, and doesn't take women out of their normal routine. Now, if somebody needs uh, has a prolapse, Prolapse surgery generally would require coming into hospital for about three nights. um, And most people would take about six weeks off work uh, to get a prolapse repair done. It would feel very much like after having a baby. The women come back by, by and large, the vast majority are incredibly happy with what they've had done. They they come back and they tell us how it has improved their quality of life. And it's the best, uh, they're the best recruiting officers I could possibly hope for. Uh, for encouraging uh, younger junior doctors to to um, specialise in this area.
1: Well, Dr. Jerry Agnew, thank you so much for coming on. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Coming up after the break, yoga and mindfulness coach Michelle Van Valey on tips for anxious kids.
2: Alive and kicking on News Talk with
1: Benelin day and night tablets, twenty four hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, with the kids going back to school after Christmas amid much stress and uncertainty, I wanted to look at ways in which we can check in with our children and do our best to keep their heads and ours together. Michelle Van Valey is a mindfulness and yoga teacher, and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hi, great. Thanks. Michelle, you are in the throes of it yourself. You're also a parent and a teacher.
0: Yes. Yeah. I have two kids, um, 10 and 12, and I work in several schools uh, as a yoga teacher and bring mindfulness and sort of wellness programs to adolescents. And that's really how it began. I was feeling uh, anxiety around some experiences with my own child, and I wouldn't have even categorized it as anxiety. Uh, I think there's a tendency as a parent to kind of look at a child's behavior and go, why are they doing that? Or they're not listening to me, or, you know, something, it's like the child is doing something to us, when in reality, the child is actually in their experience, and they're feeling what they're feeling, regardless of whether it's helpful to us or not. So what I experienced um, myself with my own child was that, you know, trying to get him out the door, this is a common parenting struggle, trying to get him out the door, go grab your shoes, put your shoes on, grab your bag. And then there would be this, kind of inaction and I was taking that as I'm being ignored or I'm being disrespected or, um, you know, this child is not helping me. And what was happening for him was that he was feeling really anxious about what was next. So the transition was difficult, even though he likes the boys at school, he was finding it really hard to just get to school because that transition phase was really hard for him. So he was resisting my instruction and I was reacting as if he was doing something to me, like not listening to me or not behaving. And so we would get in these kind of tangled moments at the front door that would get pretty frenzied where he would start crying or I would get upset and maybe raise my voice. And I just went, this is not how I wanna do this. So I started looking at myself, What, what am I doing here? that's not helping this situation or that's making this harder. And then when I started looking at myself, I started to apply some things uh, to my own way of doing things, my own way of being. I started to see the result in my children. And then it was like this light bulb. I was already teaching yoga in schools and I just went, oh my gosh, that's that's where all the kids are. Let let's bring this to them. And so I started pursuing schools. Now it's not easy to get the the schools are very busy. They have a a massive uh, amount of work to get through in the day. They have certain kind of government regulations that they have to fulfill education wise. So trying to kind of squeeze in some mindfulness or some yoga is a bit of a challenge. But more and more schools are definitely opening to that.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that. Um, the Conscious Parent, it's a book by Shafari Tsabari and it, it it deals in that and it, it blew my mind because it's a whole new way of looking at parenting as you say that things aren't happening to you and to be a bit more mindful about how we parent. And I uh, look, I still balls it up daily, but it is a new way of looking at things. And even when you described your child I think we've all been in those situations and we have an image in our mind of what an anxious child is, that they they won't leave the house, that they sit quivering in the corner. Whereas many of what we would put in inverted commas as bad behavior can actually be tied up a little bit in anxiety. It just needs to be picked apart a little bit and some skills need to be learned. So what are some of the skills that you might be able to share with us that can help in situations like this?
0: Yeah, well, I think as you said there that I have the conscious parenting book as well, and there's another fantastic parenting book by uh, Myla and John Kabat-Zinn. John Kabat-Zinn is sort of the the founder of this current mindfulness movement. The the MBSR programs, mindfulness based stress reduction programs, come from all of the evidence that he has accumulated over the last 40 years about how mindfulness affects us or helps us. And so they've written a book called Everyday Parenting. And in that book, basically, the first thing that we're doing when we're looking at our children is that we're recognizing them as autonomous individuals. They are are little people, and they have their own feelings and their own needs. And they should be given some sovereignty over that involving the child in a decision is one way to help to get them on side. And I'm learning that as I go. Uh, Like yourself, I'm not perfect at this. I still have all of my own stress reactivity. I think that um, the mindfulness programs that I've participated in and the, the continually facilitating it, it's just getting more and more kind of ingrained in me that this is a handier way Of managing myself and my child. So, to start with myself and to say, you know, this is very frustrating. I'm getting angry. And sometimes I might even decide that I need to leave the room for a second and I'll say, I'll be right back. I'm going to just take a minute because I'm feeling angry and I'm going to come back. And that helps a lot because the child gets to understand that the anger is something that's normal, uh, that can be processed and that we can give ourselves a moment to pause and then return to something that's really challenging. So a big thing here is modeling. So I'm modeling this behavior for my child. And then the other part to that is giving them tools. So not only am I looking at myself and how I'm impacting their behavior, but now I'm going to say, hey, when you feel like this, what if we tried maybe doing something like square breathing or box breathing. And that's a really simple practice for kids where you might take your finger and trace up as if you're making a square in the air, tracing up as you're inhaling, hold that breath for two counts, one, two, tracing across, and then tracing down as you're exhaling, And then tracing across again with that holding the breath. And this starts to bring our emotions back into regulation. It gives us a, a little bit of something to focus on. And it gives us a moment to kind of sense into the central nervous system, send it a message that it's okay. I'm okay here.
1: I'm breathing. Another area that's close to your heart is children with learning difficulties. Are we doing enough with our curriculum to have mindfulness there? Would it be of benefit to, to children like this who struggle with the school setup, the traditional school setup as it is now?
0: I think it's really helpful. I mean, I think for me I didn't realize that I had a child that was struggling in that way. He behaves well at school, he does well enough uh in his work, he's not at the top of the class, he's not at the bottom of the class. And it has no behavioral issues, so to me, it wasn't even really on my radar that this child might have a learning disability or um, or just some sort of neurodivergent functioning. So he might not be the same as every other child. And of course, now even saying that, not every child is the same. So we all have these little sort of differences. And what the school is, what schools are doing is they're teaching a group of children, so they might all have you know, a little bit more of a, a need in one area, a little less need of another area, whereas the, the kids on the other side of the room might be in, you know, a different situation. And so it's really hard for teachers, and I appreciate that a lot, to to kind of get through, every, you know, what everybody's needs are. So as a parent, what happened for me was I recognized the anxiety piece first. Oh, this transition is hard for him. And then I started asking questions about it. Why why is this this way for him? And when I started to ask those questions, then it kind of opened up the possibility that there might be something not 100% right for him in the way that he was taking information in. And in watching him further and further, what I noticed was that that was what was making him anxious. So being in the classroom... He was feeling like he wasn't good enough. He didn't know enough. He wasn't as fast as the other kids. He wasn't as smart as the other kids. And that was really kind of getting into him and bringing his self-esteem down. And as soon as we got him evaluated, when I kind of realized this anxiety is tied to something cognitive, I got him evaluated by um, an educational psychologist. And sure enough, a, a, a diagnosis of dyslexia came through. And, you know, funny enough, I'm dyslexic, so that didn't come out of nowhere. And um, and so in finding that that's happening for him, we're now starting to put supports in place around him in the school and at home so that he feels supported. Maybe the homework is a little less intense. Maybe it's not as long. Maybe there's a cutoff point where you're going to do 30 minutes and then we're going to pack it in so that we're not ending up in these eternal homework battles uh, where I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it sort of thing.
1: And what is the science then finally behind why mindfulness works? Because you've given us some techniques like the box breathing, like stopping for a moment, like looking at what you can control right now. What is the science behind how this impacts and helps children and adults?
0: Yeah, well, we're starting to understand Well, we're not starting to understand. I guess for a while now, there's been a great amount of research um, in neuroscience about how the brain functions and and we're also learning about the different stages and development for kids and how how that happens for them as well. And there are parts of the brain that are triggered like so maybe this transition of moving from home to school is going to trigger my child's alarm system. So the amygdala, the part of the brain that says, "Okay, things are not safe. It's time to tense up and freak out inside. And you know, don't move. So you, that might be the fight or flight or freeze response. So I'm, I'm illustrating the freeze response here. Stop, don't move. And so what we can do with mindfulness is we can start to provide them with a little bit more kind of noticing. Oh, look, this is what's happening right now. My body is tensed up. I'm feeling really uncomfortable. Maybe taking a moment to breathe into that, saying, "Saying I'm going to feel my feet on the floor. And with kids, sometimes we might even like tap their feet on the floor so that there's a little more sensations or clap their hands together so you can feel that tingling sensation in your fingertips. And that gives them a moment of something to focus on that disrupts this automatic cycle that suddenly takes us into stress reactivity.
1: I know, and it, it, it's a a muscle you need to flex and flex and flex again and not be so hard on yourself on the journey. Um, I think there's, I think you're going to have to come back and we're going to have to revisit um, particularly areas like conflict and stress management. But today we were talking about kids and parents and you've given us some great tips. For more, you can go to michellevanveiley.com. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Claire. Coming up after the break, neuroscientist and author Sabina Brennan on what happens in our brains when we exercise. Alive and kicking on News Talk with Benelin Day and Night Tablets. 24 hour cold and flu relief. Always read the label. Ask your pharmacist for advice. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, we're constantly told we should exercise, and I am a big advocate for promoting moving our bodies daily, doing something that we enjoy, as opposed to feeling we should be doing this or that all in pursuit of the body beautiful. I work out for my head first and changes to my general health and muscle tone are just an added bonus. But sometimes I think when we understand why exercise is good for us and why it makes us feel good, it could make it all seem a little less daunting. And to help us look under the bonnet of our brains, as it were, is neuroscientist and author, Dr. Sabina Brennan. Hello, Sabina. How are you?
3: I'm very good. How are you? And Happy New Year.
1: And to you. And what's your relationship with exercise like?
3: It's it's not bad. Uh, I have always sort of walked a lot. I had... I... I Gosh, I got COVID in October, so I couldn't exercise for quite a while uh, because it really actually hit me hard. Um, So I really did struggle with that. And I tell you, you know, I've hurt my back on and off over the years and nearly gone insane because exercise and we can talk about a bit later exercise is just so good for your mental health do you know what I mean I definitely need exercise for my mental health going out walking you know it doesn't have to be mad exercise but if I can't get out for a walk if I can't do something physical like that I really feel it mentally but I've just moved house and we have a ginormous garden and um I also have room now for a gym in my house. So uh, because we're not going to be near a gym. So I bought all the equipment, but I was just out the garden yesterday, like raking leaves. And I sort of said, I think I've just wasted a few hundred quid (laughs) on a gym set because I could really work in my muscles. And I was listening to Alan Titchmark, and uh, he was talking about doing something in the garden and that you'll have a six pack in no time. And I could feel it when I was raking the leaves. But anyway, Heavy gardening does count for aerobic exercise.
1: Fantastic. You'll have the gym and the heavy gardening. There'll be no stopping you at all. So why is it so good for our mental health? What happens in your brain when you exercise?
3: Gosh, there's so many things happen in your brain. And I think it's just important to sort of say that the the brain communicates, you know, brain cells communicate with each other and with the cells in the rest of your body using electrical and chemical signals. So um, brain chemicals, Uh, play a huge role in our life and they take the form of things called neurotransmitters you'll have heard of hormones you might have heard of things like cytokines they're involved in inflammation etc so basically um one of the chemicals that's released uh for example is serotonin and you'll have heard of that Uh, that can be linked with reducing anxiety levels but also other chemicals are released like dopamine and that's uh that's a chemical that, uh, you know, is involved in the reward centers in your brain. So believe it or not, with exercise, you know, you can get feelings of pleasure and reward. But also noradrenaline is released um, and that boosts your alertness, makes you sharper. So not only kind of influences your mood um, uh, and reduces anxiety, uh, it can actually boost your You know, your sharpness, your cognitive performance, your ability to focus and pay attention.
1: Because it's interesting you say that about the reward centers, because you do get that sort of fair play to you. You went for that walk or you went to that gym class or whatever your chosen exercise is. And I also think it turns off, you know, and it niggles at you that you haven't exercised for a while. And then you're saying all the negative stuff to yourself and why didn't you go? And for God's sake, if you just planned your day better, you could get out and, you know, you need to. And whatever is going on, you also silence that inner critic. So I think that's yeah. an important part as well. I,
3: I think we need to just silence the inner critic full stop. You know, it really it really isn't it just isn't good for us, you know. But I think when it comes to exercise, the hardest part is kind of getting up off the couch and and getting out and Doing it if it's outdoors you're going to do um the easiest way just kind of if if people are wondering you know how, how can I create a new exercise habit uh, the easiest way to create any habit is to tag it onto to something that you do anyway every day. Do you know what I mean so that can be you know related to kind of getting up in the morning at, at a specific time. Do you know what I mean it's kind of good to pick a specific time. I think exercising at lunchtime is um, a brilliant thing to do because it kind of, well, the research shows that if you exercise at lunchtime, it actually counteracts that natural dip in alertness that we all feel in the afternoon. So you'll be sharper in the afternoon, better able to concentrate. It also means you've kind of got less time Uh, to eat (laughs) or overeat, but it also forces you to take that break because I think with uh, the pandemic and lockdown and working from home and actually even before the pandemic, people had sort of stopped taking lunch breaks and did this thing of working through lunchtime and taking your lunch at your desk. And in terms of productivity, it's completely counterproductive because, you know, your brain needs breaks. Like it really absolutely needs breaks. It's only so long it can focus for, um, and it needs a break and take a break and do something that's fun. Um, but actually doing something, doing exercise, something like that, um, really can, can benefit you. And you'll feel better, as you said. Um, and, and with time, um, you'll come to crave it, you know. Um, endorphins are released and um, even opioids And and cannabinoids in your brain, which is your natural occurring chemical, and it is as the name uh, sounds, it is uh, like a naturally occurring uh, cannabis in your brain. It's a cannabinoid and uh, it's harmless, but um, it can make you feel good. It also can help relieve pain. Uh, like an uh, analgesic uh, some of the chemicals that are released during exercise so again that is this one is counterintuitive you think if you exercise you might feel more pain but it actually can help you cope better with pain
1: and why is it important for the brain to have a healthy cardiovascular system
3: yeah so one of the first benefits for exercise um of exercise is that it keeps your cardiovascular system healthy so your um brain absolutely uh relies on a healthy cardiovascular system to survive it needs oxygen to thrive and actually you you know i mean you know it a, a brain can't survive for more than a few minutes without oxygen Um, so if you have A healthy cardiovascular system because you're exercising regularly, your brain will get uh, the supply of oxygen and nutrients that it needs. But when you actually exercise while you're in the act of physical, Physical activity, your heart rate increases, and the blood flowing to your brain carries extra oxygen and nutrients. And your brain cells actually really benefit from that. Um, so, that's really, really uh, important. And your ability to learn and to think and to remember is closely linked to your glucose levels and the ability of your brain to efficiently use the energy resource. So, um, you know, a healthy cardiovascular system all helps uh, with that. Um, So it's really important for that. But there's so much other, that's kind of the obvious benefit for your brain of physical exercise, but it also actually reduces stress because the brain chemicals um, released uh, during exercise um, can actually help to eliminate uh, other chemicals in the brain like adrenaline and cortisol that are released during stress uh, and during anxiety so they can really help calm you down and I think a lot of people will have learned that you know that if, if they, they're living with anxiety that exercise is a good way to kind of help them keep keep that at bay.
1: We just don't hear it that enough, I don't think. Like we hear it's good for your mental health and it's really important. But that's why I love having you on, because when you actually hear what's physically happening, it makes it more appealing, I think, than you should get out there and you need to lose weight and all that other stuff that usually comes with it that starts from something very negative. Like I couldn't believe that exercise stops your brain from shrinking. So that yes. <laughs> neuroplasticity and your ability yeah. to learn and remember things is yeah, improved yeah, by exercise. Yeah.
3: I mean, that's why I'm passionate. I think it's hysterical. Like every single person on the planet has a brain and most people haven't a clue how it works. And I agree with you, you know, like an awful lot of the advice or tips I give for a healthy brain things that people know they should do anyway but I do think the difference comes when you say well actually if you exercise uh, you know you'll actually become smarter you know you can learn better you can concentrate better yeah you might lose weight losing weight is brilliant for your brain because being obese uh, increases your risk of developing dementia do you know you know so there's all these knock-on effects yeah exercise actually does stop your brain from from shrinking so Uh, You know, when you hit about the age of 30, your brain actually starts to shrink. And scientists used to think that that was it was called age related atrophy. Atrophy means just that cells die off. And if cells die off in your brain, your brain is going to get smaller. And if your brain shrinks, the functioning of your brain is going to be affected as well. So It starts to shrink from about the age of 30, and by 60, the rate of that atrophy accelerates. And then if you have Alzheimer's disease, the shrinking is at a much greater rate. And scientists used to think that that was just part of the aging process. It's just what happened when you age. But what's becoming more and more clear um, is that we know an awful lot more about the lifestyle factors that not only keep your brain healthy, um, but can also uh, keep pace with that atrophy. So keep it, help you to keep growing new neurons to keep pace with loss of neurons so that you can actually maintain the volume of your brain and on top of that uh, doing these activities also reduces your risk of developing dementia and one of those activities is physical exercise and to go into exactly what happens in your brain physical activity literally changes your brain so it can actually enhance the connections between your brain cells by stimulating the release of a chemical called brain derived neurotrophic factor it's called bdnf for short but i actually like to call it miracle grow for the brain because it actually acts like a fertilizer so when you exercise this uh, growth factor called bdnf is released and it kind of just makes your brain more fertile making it easier to grow new neurons and new connections and that's what actually stops your brain from Shrinking. Do you know what I mean? Because you're 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 making it easy for your brain to grow new neurons to compensate for any loss of neurons that might might occur.
1: And you so, forget yeah. what a knock on effect that has then, because you're not only strengthening your muscles, but if you're strengthening your brain power, you know how when you're really tired all the time when you're not exercising and then the idea of getting back to exercise just seems like it's going to make you feel more tired whereas actually Uh, once you get into the flow of it you've loads of energy I didn't realize that that was actually connected to the brain
3: yeah 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 and definitely exercise makes gives you more energy rather than less and I think if people are listening you know often people with chronic pain or as you said you know there's a lot of people at the moment experiencing brain fog either as a a prolonged symptom of long COVID, or associated with the stresses and the sleep disruption and all those things associated with the pandemic, and exercise will really help uh, with that brain fog. It will help you help to make it easier for you to concentrate and to focus, and it also helps with your sleep. Do you know, because disrupted sleep is kind of at the root of so many issues and problems. You know, disrupted sleep. Uh, You know, is related to anxiety. It's related to depression. It's related to overeating. Uh, You know, if you've disrupted sleep, you'll eat between three and six hundred more calories the next day and you will seek those calories from sugary, fatty food. So exercising will help you sleep better, which in turn, you'll actually want to eat less. You you know what I mean? They are like everything that you do is interlinked and it's all kind of related to your brain. Um, And I just think it helps to understand why you're doing something. Like, why are you going to force yourself to get up and go out for that walk? I mean, the thing is, it just takes it just takes a little while, um, you know, to where you have to force yourself to do something, and if you do it in a routine fashion, if you do it at the same time every day, if you have the same routine, uh, this is what I would suggest people to do. You know, do the same things. You know, have a little routine. Whether it's laying out your clothes the night before and sticking your runners on first thing and doing it before you do anything else. If you do that for a short period of time, a week or two, your brain will actually see that as a pattern that it can automate. And your brain is constantly scanning your behavior for patterns because your thinking brain Uh, uses up a huge amount of energy and your brain has to make use of its available resources. So your unthinking, unconscious part of the brain that's responsible for habits uses far less energy. So your thinking brain's always looking for something that it can abdicate responsibility for to your unconscious part of the brain to make a habit. So if you force yourself to do something like exercise at a very regular interval your brain will say ah there's a habit I'm going to give that over to the basal ganglia to look after and then I don't have to think about it and before you know it you're just doing it in a habitual way which makes it much much more effortless and also uh, if you smile when you exercise um it actually uh, makes it less uh, challenging you know it kind of is easier
1: <laughs> I love all of those tips as usual I could listen to you all day long you make The brain, sexy and fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we all just need to grab a rake and come over and help you in your garden and smile our way through it. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah. And help me with some painting and cleaning. And oh, we have so much to do.
1: (laughs) With a smile on our face. Well, thank you as ever. Neuroscientist Sabina Brennan, thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Sabina is an author of many books, including Beating Brain Fog, and she also has a podcast called Superbrain. You can find out more at superbrain.ie. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, to Garrett Mulhall and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening and for emailing. I will see you next week.